if, if you've seen me over the past week and a half and I look a little dazed and confused, a little haggard, now you know why. Because <laughs> camp really will take it out of you. But can I tell you, every year we come back from camp, we are tired, we are exhausted, we are worn out and sunburned, but we're full because of what God did in our lives. I'll tell you, I've been going to camp now for over a decade um, as a student and as a youth pastor, but I can tell you every time you go to camp, God meets you there. Our students had such an amazing week. You know, they, we had students that rededicated their lives to God. We had students that found Christ for the first time that week. We have students that were called into a lifetime of vocational ministry. We have students that were just energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's always an awesome, awesome time. So I want to thank you, church, for making this possible for our students. Really, there's nothing quite like it in our ministry. Uh, it always pays back so much in the lives of our students. So thank you. Now, I didn't just show you that video to give you an idea of what camp looks like. I, I did it because it really serves kind of as a sermon illustration this morning. Uh, my favorite part of camp is when it gets to day four. By day four, everybody is tired and worn out and hung together by just a string and uh, high on sugar and caffeine. Um, but day four is race day. You saw some of the clips of that in the video. All of the events of camp culminate into one giant relay race. They call it the amazing race because every student in the entire camp has a job to do. Every student gets to participate in one aspect of this relay race. Whether it's singing the national anthem and holding a note out for the longest or running up the hill that they call Goliath, uh, and that's no joke, that thing is a monster, uh, <laughs> or becoming a human Sunday. Uh, everyone has a part to play. In one year when I was a kid, uh, there was this team, I, I believe it was the, the pink team, uh, they were doing great all throughout camp. They were winning all of the activities. They were, they were going to be in first place. And then it came to race day. And out of the gate, they were dominating. They, they got an early lead in the race, and they were just passing it off from one thing to the next, getting past everybody in the whole race. And then it came time to run up the hill. And when it was time to run up the hill... The guy that was running, he, uh, he, he reached for the baton, and the guy that was handing it to him dropped it. And before he could recover, he looked back and realized that the baton had rolled itself all the way back down to the bottom of the hill. Now, he had a choice to make in that moment. He either could go turn around and run to the bottom of the hill and pick the baton up and continue with his race, or he could do what he did and just keep running. He kept running his race, and he decided, all right, for the next events, we're just going to tag off with the next person, and we'll just we'll keep the race going. I'm sure it's not that big of a deal. And it wasn't, 
until it came time to cross the finish line. They continued being in first place and they were continually dominating all the other events and they had a really great lead. And when they came time to cross the finish line, the official at the end of the race said, I'm sorry, but you can't win. You don't have the baton in your hand. So even though they technically crossed the finish line first, they got in last place because they fumbled the handoff of the baton. They didn't cross the finish line with the baton in hand. If you haven't figured out yet, the baton is a metaphor. I think the Bible is, is full of examples of faith transferring from generation to generation, passing the baton, if you will, from one generation to the next. The Bible's full of examples of this happening really, really well, and the Bible's also got as many examples of it happening really, really poorly. Somebody fumbling the handoff and the baton rolling to the proverbial bottom of the hill. One of my favorite examples of this is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes this to the young pastor, Timothy. He says, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. We learn something about Timothy here, that he is the product of a family of faith. It was his grandmother that first came into the faith. And if you do a little quick math, his grandmother Lois came into the faith probably around the time Christianity started. Really, there hadn't been that much time that passed between the life of Timothy and the life of Christ. So it's all the likely that Lois received the faith from one of the first apostles. And she grew in the faith and passed it on to her daughter, Timothy's mother, Eunice. And Eunice nurtured that faith in her young son, Timothy. And it continued strong in his life. To the point where two of the epistles of Paul are dedicated to this young man, this young pastor. Who grew up in a family of faith whose family modeled what it looked like to pass on faith to the next generation. Really, I think that that is the kind of faith, the kind of transition of faith that we all want for our families, to pass down from generation to generation, continuing strong, growing with each generation, that God would do greater things in the next generation than he did in ours. It's what we want for our families, it's what we want for our churches, it's what we want for our nation. But I think if you ask the average American Christian, they would tell you that they are just a tiny bit concerned about the next generation. You know, for thousands of years, the Christian faith has been passed down from father to son, from mother to daughter, Father to daughter, mother to son, grandfather, so on. Elder to younger. We've been successful in ensuring that the faith would live on beyond our days. But kids these days, am I right? <laughs> Something is wrong with these kids. 
<laughs> it's one of our fabulous youth leaders. <laughs> Something is wrong with these kids, isn't it? I don't know how this handoff is going to work. I, I think deep down, all of us have asked that question at some point. If you've ever even met a teenager for the slightest bit of time. <laughs> Here's the problem. I don't think that those concerns are entirely unfounded. There is something noticeably different about the next generation. I think you could sum it up in these two maxims. Uh, one of them is this. This is true about the next generation. It is said that 14 is the new 24. The other maxim is this. 28 is the new 18. Think about the young people that you know in your life. 14 is the new 24, and 28 is the new 18. So, for instance, 14 is the new 24. Teens are being confronted with worldview decisions that previous generations didn't have to face until well into young adulthood. Teenagers can access the entire world 24-7 from their smartphone. The ideas and perspectives that they can encounter today would have required a trip to the library or a plane ticket in generations past. This is the most interconnected generation in history. Their access to information is unprecedented. For instance, your teen, your young person, can't imagine a world where they don't have constant access to a navigation app on their phone. There is no need to look up directions and figure out how to get someplace because in their world, they have always been able to just type in an address or Google a location and the phone would tell you how to get there. They can't imagine a world where that is not a reality. They, they can't imagine a world where YouTube doesn't have a tutorial to figure out any problem that they have. How many of you older folks have figured this out? YouTube has the answer to all of your problems. <laughs> there is some guy that has taken apart that engine uh, and he's found the problem that you're having and he's made a video about how to fix that problem. Your kids, when, they, when you can't help them with their math homework, they're gonna go on YouTube and some Indian man has figured out that exact calculus problem and is walking them through how to do their differential equations. There is a solution to every problem on YouTube. They don't have to wonder about mundane questions like your generation might have. You know, it, it used to be that you would sit down with your friends and you'd have conversations that went like this. Where, where did I see that actor before? And you would talk about it, right? You would go through, like, oh, yeah, I think he was in that movie, or wait, wasn't he on that TV show with this person? Kids don't do that today because they don't need to ask that question. They just pull up their IMDb app on their phone, uh, and they pull up every movie that person has ever been in, every uh, film that they've participated in, every TV show, who directed it, uh, who was the cinematographer, fun facts about that movie. It just, it ends the conversation because they have the answer. They have never had to wonder how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. <laughs> the whole ad campaign 
is pointless because you can just Google how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? And the answer is 364. <laughs> I went on a little rabbit trail. Uh, there were some researchers from Purdue University that designed a machine uh, to test this problem. For, for your own sanity, don't look it up because it will haunt your nightmares. <laughs> but 364, that's how many licks it takes. Uh, they have unprecedented access to information at the snap of a finger. They also consume content at alarming rates. By and large, their favorite site is YouTube. It's studied that on average, teens spend about eight and a half hours a day on their devices. Tweens, those that are age 8 to 12, spend about five and a half hours per day. Those numbers were from 2021, and they're 17% higher than they were before the pandemic. These kids are watching YouTube like it's their job. Eight and a half hours a day. Okay. And as a result of being constantly connected to the world, teens are reported higher than ever levels of stress and anxiety. They are constantly battling for the attention and affirmation of their peers. And they're haunted by the seemingly ever-present realization that everyone else looks better and has more fun and is more talented than they are. These kids are dealing with adult issues by the time they're in the eighth grade. And on the flip side, 28 is the new 18. Young adults are reaching traditional markers of adulthood way later in life. The median age for the first marriage is now five years later than 50 years ago. Hovers around 26 for women and 28 for men. Only 20% of 18 to 29-year-olds were married in 2010 in comparison to 59% of that same group in 1960. 20%. And despite this shift, young people will still tell you they feel the pressure of an age 30 deadline for settling down and finding their soulmate and getting married. The average age for women having their first child is uh, 25 years old, almost five years later than women in 1970. And on average, the birth rate has declined steeply from three and a half children per woman, I, don't, I still haven't figured out how they do the half a child, uh, to two in 2010. And, and partly because of all of the different job changes and educational changes, um, they take a lot longer to become financially independent. In comparison to 50 years ago, parents today provide 11% more financial help to their young adult. 11% more. Uh, 40% of young adults in their 20s move back home with their parents at least once. Yikes. As a result of all of these shifts, sociologists that monitor five key adult events of leaving home, finishing school, becoming financially independent, getting married, and having children, they report a dip in the number of 30-year-olds that have achieved all five of those markers. In 1960, more than two-thirds of young adults could check all five of those boxes. 
And in 2000, this was true of less than half of females and less than a third of males. And in the 20 years since, the numbers have dropped even more. Those are some scary statistics. It's a little bit troubling if you think about young people. But let me tell you another truth. The future is bright. There is still hope for the next generation. Because as much as this generation uh, sees some unique challenges, this too is true. Since the beginning of time, every generation has looked back at their own past and thought their growing up days were better. They have longed for the good old days gone by and they thought the next generation was doomed. If you don't believe me, I brought some examples. Uh, in the year 2250 BC, um, a man wrote this about the next generation. Uh, his name was King Niram Sin, and he said this, We have fallen upon evil times, and the world has waxed very old and wicked. Politics are very corrupt, and children are no longer respectful to their parents. Wow. Yeah. 2250 BC. Uh, in the year 20 BC, Horace, I love this guy, uh, he wrote, Our sire's age was worse than our grandsires. We, their sons, are more worthless than they, and so in turn we shall give the world a progeny yet more corrupt. It's just going downhill. <laughs> it's, it's been going downhill and it's going to keep going downhill. Every generation has thought the next generation is doomed. Aristotle, everybody loves Aristotle, he said this, Young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. <laughs> Hate to break it to you, Aristotle, but that's just young people. <laughs> Horace, again, he, he wrote this, The beardless youth does not foresee what is useful, squandering his money. Well, the bearded youth also t sometimes squanders his money as well. Uh, for a long, long time, people have thought the next generation was doomed. And I think you all are evidence of the fact that if the generation in 2250 BC was not the one that ended it all, then this next generation is probably not going to be the one that ends it all. Nobody in history has ever waxed eloquently about living in days of righteousness and tranquility. No one has ever placed all of their hope in the next generation and said, man, those guys are doing great. We've all thought that the next generation kind of was terrible. It, it seems like it's always been the case. So while the next generation definitely has some unique challenges and some unique troubles, the, the data definitely shows that, they also have unique opportunities. This is true. Every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. We'll say that again. Every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. This generation's greatest challenges have the potential to be their greatest strengths. So while it is said that they are the most interconnected generation... What that really means is they have the greatest potential in history to reach the whole world with the gospel. 
People that were nearly impossible to reach a generation ago can encounter the gospel online through their smartphones. There is coming a day where there will no longer be such a thing as a closed country to a missionary because the internet is blind to international borders. In the past 20 years, the Smartphone has become so ubiquitous across the world, so important to the global infrastructure, that there are people in the world today that don't have access to running water in their homes, but have access to a smartphone that is connected to the internet. This generation is more interconnected than any in the past, and that means they have the greatest opportunity to leverage that for the gospel. It's said this generation consumes more online content than any other form of media. What that really means is Christian creators have never had as great an opportunity to reach a wide audience with creative endeavors. These online media platforms are completely democratized, so the traditional gatekeepers of traditional media no longer have a say in what media gets popular. Anyone can get popular on the internet today. So Christian artists and writers and actors and filmmakers and musicians have a never-before-seen opportunity to reach an audience around the world. There's never before been as great an opportunity. It's said that this generation has access to the entire world's knowledge at their fingertips. What that really means is Generation Z has more access to the Bible and Bible study resources and Bible teaching than anyone in human history. You look at the YouVersion Bible app. It's one of the most downloaded apps in the entire world. It has translations of the Bible in hundreds of languages. It means people all around the world can read the Bible in their own language in countries where they don't even have access to physical Bibles. There are teachers on the internet that will break down the Bible in comprehensive, biblical, doctrinal ways, and you can watch hours of content online. There's one missionary that I know personally, his entire ministry is gathering together Bible study resources for pastors in countries that don't have access to Bible schools or uh, Bible colleges. He packages them onto thumb drives and sends them around the world so these pastors in countries can read the Bible and study the Bible and teach their people with good, solid resources. They have more access to the Bible than any generation in human history. It's said that this generation doesn't reach the same adult milestones as people in the past. It's said that they stay single for longer what that really means is this generation has more time in the most energized years of their lives to dedicate to ministry endeavors. They can take risks and step out in faith because they're not committed to provide for a family yet. They can serve in places they wouldn't be able to if they were married. They've just got more time to give to people. So how can we ensure a solid handoff? How can we make sure we pass the baton to this next generation? Well, I have three things. The first is this. Get a solid grasp on your own faith. Do you know the number one predictor of a child's commitment to the faith? It's you. The parent's commitment to the faith. There's a sociologist named Vern Bergsten 
who did a 35-year study of four generations of people of faith. And what he found is more than anything else, the greatest indicator of a child being most committed to faith was a parent that was most committed to faith. And that followed in other indicators of faith. The people whose parents had high views of scripture and of prayer and of attendance to church was reflected in. So all of his report was summed up in this one sentence. In religion, parents really matter. And certainly this is no guarantee. Each child will make their own decisions about faith. But on the macro level, this is such a fascinating truth. What matters to you will matter to your children. Examine the faith that you're handing off to the next generation. Is it a solid faith? Is it well-founded? Because they're going to check. They're going to examine faith. They're going to explore faith. They're going to ask questions, and sometimes they're going to doubt. <gasps> I know, doubt. Scary. I think we as a church need to reevaluate our relationship with doubt. I think oftentimes we proclaim it as a lack of faith and we shun it away. And really what we do to the next generation when we try to eliminate doubt from the conversation is we tell them that I don't have an answer for what you're asking and that scares me. Can I challenge your framework for a second? Our students have heard me say this over and over again for the past semester. I, I can't take credit for it. A really smart lady said this about doubt. She said, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. We have to engage with the questions the next generation is asking. We have to answer them for ourselves first. Because doubt is the process through which we develop a strong faith. We have to ask those questions and find answers. Doubt is neutral. It just means you still have some questions. There are some things you're not sure about. I think sometimes we confuse doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is a destination. Unbelief is saying, that is a thing I do not find true. Doubt just means you're in the process. You're still figuring things out. One pastor put it this way. So doubt is like the ice between two banks of a frozen river. A grassy bank symbolizes belief and a rocky bank symbolizes unbelief. Doubting is the place between belief and unbelief. And doubt is like ice. It can slide you closer to God or it can slide you further away from him. So I think we have a choice to pick a perspective when it comes to people asking questions about their faith. We can either assume that that person is in rebellion and wants to reject everything we've taught them and has a personal grudge against all the things you as their loving parent raised them in, or we can assume that that person, that student is trying to engage their faith with their life. They're trying to reconcile a world where they're learning and exploring and find out how their faith fits into that. They're going to ask questions. They're going to ask difficult questions. 
And we have to have an answer. We have to have a firm grasp on our faith in order to give them a good answer. A study by Fuller Youth Institute found that over 70% of church-going high school students experienced what they qualified as serious doubts about their faith. And what's really troubling about that statistic is that less than half of those students were able to share that doubt with a trusted adult or friend. Less than half. The ones that were able to talk about their doubts and ask their questions correlated almost every time with a stronger, more mature faith. In other words, doubt is not toxic to faith, but silence is. We have to have a firm grasp on our faith. Second thing we need to do is run alongside. As we're preparing to pass the baton, we need to match the pace with the next generation. Now, I, I don't know much about running, obviously, uh, but I do know this. In the relay, the runners that are preparing to hand off the baton and the runners that are preparing to receive the baton almost never start off from a dead stop. No, they're locked in together for several strides before the handoff happens. The next runner has to match the pace of the previous runner in order to continue the momentum of the relay. And the same is true as we pass off our faith to the next generation. The only way to ensure a successful transfer of faith is to run alongside them while they learn the pace. When surveyed, the number one problem identified among today's young people is something I think that you might find surprising. They said busyness was the number one problem facing teenagers today. I think we've over-programmed and under-rested our lives. One researcher put it this way. He said, parents have evolved to the point where we believe driving is support, being active is love, and providing any and every opportunity is selfless nurture. We are a culture that has forgotten to be together. We've lost the ability to spend unstructured downtime. I think a lot of parents today think they're doing a great job of running alongside the next generation when really all they're doing is running them ragged. Don't mishear me. This is not about what activities or how many activities you do with your child. You could have an agenda packed as full as the day is long and do a fantastic job of running alongside the next generation. Or you could be locked up together all day long, helicoptering over your child, not doing anything, and do a terrible job of running alongside. The question to ask if you're really running alongside the next generation is this. Am I making time to model what it means to follow Christ for the next generation? Paul writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. 
In other words, in all of your doing, in all of your activity, in all of your life, do it to the glory of God. Make sure God's reputation is being bolstered. Make sure God looks good after you do your activity. Watch your actions so it might reflect well upon your Father in heaven. And do what I do as I do what Jesus did. Ask yourself, if your child is mirroring your actions, would they look like Christ? If your child did the things you did, would they end up looking like Jesus? Would they be running at a pace that would ensure the faith continues? Part of modeling faith for the next generation is talking about it. I think a lot of times we've lost the language of faith because we don't take time to talk about what God is doing in our lives. So practice this by having conversations with young people about faith. Share what you're trusting God for. Offer to pray with them and pray for them. Talk about the sermon. Give Jesus credit for what he's doing in your life. Make it a part of your conversations. And then show them what faith looks like through action. Do faith with them. Serve together at church. Find a cause that Jesus would be all about and volunteer together. Sit together as a family in church. Talk about what's going on. Bring them to your small group. Get them involved in an intergenerational community of believers. And then give them the tools to make their faith personal. Allow them to flesh out their own expression of faith in their own way. A great question to ask young people is when do you feel closest to God? I think as a, a parent, you could probably infer what their answers will be because you know your kids pretty well. You, you probably have an idea of what their answer to that question would be, but ask them anyways. And then make time in your life for them to do that thing. Make time for them to feel close to God and challenge them to express their faith in new and different ways, not just the ways that they feel most comfortable with. And for the love of God, get them to youth camp. <laughs> so when the baton has been passed and the next generation is running their race, they have a firm grasp on their own faith. The race isn't over yet. Now it's time to cheer on the next runner. My favorite part about the race at camp is when it gets down to the final few events and you've got 40 or 50 kids all gathered around the kid at the last couple of events and they're all cheering and encouraging and rooting on their team because at that point, it's not about the race that I ran. It's about the race that we are all in together. At that point, the, the job no longer becomes about how I am running with the baton. It's about how I can ensure the baton crosses the finish line in someone else's hands. 
how we as a team can cross the finish line together. The role shifts from it being about yourself to making sure that baton crosses the finish line in the hands of someone else. And to do that, you need to keep the next runner engaged. You need to keep them encouraged. And you do that by talking about your race. You do that by publishing your story. I love this from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Talks about a victory that God had brought for the nation of Israel. He allowed them to defeat the Philistines in a classic Old Testament victory where they routed the enemy and slaughtered them from one town to another. It's really just classic Old Testament stuff. But after the victory is what I think is most fascinating. It says this about Samuel. It says, Samuel set up in uh, between the town of Mizpah and Jeshanah a stone, a large stone, and he named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. God brought us the victory up to this point. He made a memorial so that every generation that succeeded them could look at that monument and ask the question, what is this about? And they could tell the story of the day that God brought them the victory. If you've ran the race of faith for any amount of time, you have moments in your life where you can point to and say, up to this point, God has helped us. There are Ebenezer moments in every life of faith. And it's on you to publish those moments. Make them known in the life of your family. Make them known in your community that people could look at your monument and say, what is that about? And you can share the goodness of God in your life. All of the times where on your own you would not have made it, but God came down and made a victory in your life. I'm reminded of a story of a 19th century missionary. His name was Hudson Taylor. He was one of the first missionaries to the nation of China. He had a revolutionary approach in world missions. Every other missionary before him attempted to evangelize the world by bringing their own culture and tying it to the gospel. What Hudson Taylor did was he realized that the gospel was independent of his culture. And the gospel would be most effective in the Chinese culture when it reflected the Chinese people. Because the gospel is true no matter where you're from. So Hudson Taylor took on this radical approach of dressing like Chinese people. And he shaved his head and looked like what the men in that culture looked like. And he faced a lot of opposition for it. He faced persecution from his own associates 
who did missions a different way. He faced opposition from people in China that rejected his message. He faced opposition from the government. But in his mission house in the city of Nanjing, he had above his fireplace two words inscribed in Chinese characters on a scroll. The first word was Ebenezer. Up to this point, God has provided. And the second was Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is my provider. Because in the past, God has come through for us. And in the future, God will continue to provide. There is no gap in God's provision. There is no gap in God's protection. There is no gap for people of faith. God has provided and he will continue to provide. He made a monument of his faith that would remind him to continue running his race. That would remind the people around him when they faced persecution, God has provided and God will continue to provide. I don't know what making a monument is going to look like in your life. I know one pastor I met when I was a kid, he shared this story. He, he bought a, a jar of cheese balls from the grocery store. You know, you know the kind I'm talking about? It comes in a big jar, big clear jar. The first thing he did was eat all the cheese balls because he just really loved cheese balls. But it left him with this big empty jar. And he washed it out. And he filled it with objects. Objects that would remind him of testimonies in his life. Different little things where God had come through for their family, for their ministry. And he took that jar and he put it on a shelf in his living room. So anytime his kids or his grandkids or his neighbors would come over, they would see the jar on the shelf. They could pick out an object Say, Granddad, what's this about? Tell me the story about how God came through. See, I wouldn't be standing up on this stage today if it weren't for a father who told me those kind of stories. All of us that have walked faith for a long period of time have known there are moments in your race where it would be just as easy to lay it all down. But a previous generation ran that same race. And they have the stories to prove it. Tell your story. Find the next generation. And tell them about how God came through for you. Make it known what God did as you ran your race. Because this next generation faces some unique challenges. There's no doubt about it. And what they need is endurance. They need encouragement to run their race well. And you've done it. So tell them about it. We all know the scripture, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses... To strip off every weight that slows us down, and sin so easily entangles.
lose. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. This next generation has a unique opportunity. I truly believe this next generation will be the one that sees the return of Christ. And they have the opportunity to evangelize the entire world with the good news of Jesus. But in order to do that, they need a generation that will run alongside them, hand off the baton of faith, and encourage them to keep running their race. Would you be that encouragement today? Would you equip young people to continue running the race of faith? It's our greatest opportunity greatest hope for the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have created this next generation like Esther for such a time as this. God, you knew the challenges that they would face and you knew that every challenge they face would also be an opportunity for you to receive glory. So God, equip us. Give us the words to say. Give us the grace to give. The same grace that you gave us when we were in their shoes. Help us run alongside them. Show them the way. God, continue to be with us as we run this race as we hand off the baton of faith to the next generation. God, may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our prayer partners up. Maybe there's something in your life that you need prayer for. We'd love to agree with you this morning. We'd love to take it to God. So if you need prayer, please feel free. Come pray with us. For the rest of you, go and be blessed.